Welcome to the Adoption Connection Podcast, where we share resources by and for adoptive and foster moms. I'm Lisa Qualls. And this is Melissa Corkum. Don't worry, we get it, and we're here for you. Hi, Melissa. How are you doing? I am doing really well. How about you, Lisa? Good. Can you believe that Christmas is one week away? I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> no, I do. I have, I have come to peace with how we're doing this holiday season, and I'm ready. Bring it You're on. Ready? You're ready because you decide not to do anything. I know this. I know the truth. <laughs> my, well, life, my holiday life hack. <laughs> well, I am looking forward to the fact that I have kids rolling in from out of town. So that's, that's the best part. They're starting to come to town and Anna Rose is finishing finals and stuff. So I'll get more time with my big kids and that'll be fun. And Bass is flying in too soon. Yeah, it'll be a busy, busy house. It's funny because your house is like ramping up and mine is like slowing down. We're not getting rid of people, but we only have one more child to add to the mix and a lot of things have stopped so gymnastics and dance and homeschool community are on Christmas break and so I feel like we're just kind of rolling into a week of very little commitments and lots of reading on the sofa for me and watching Hallmark movies. That sounds wonderful we we are wrapping up things like basketball practice and those sorts of things so that will be calming things down a bit too. I was thinking, what is the lesson that you've learned during your adoption journey that has been the most surprising to you? Wow, uh, so many things. I mean, it's it's hard for me to narrow it down because really we went into it thinking we were really well-informed and wow, we had so much to learn, you know? But the thing that comes to my mind nearly immediately is that I really understood that my children were coming from trauma. I did understand that. I, and I knew I was prepared for it to be a lot of work and to be some really intensive parenting. But I honestly did not expect the process to be so long. There are aspects of this for our children that it's a lifelong journey for them. I mean, there's, there are things that will continue to be healed over many many years. And I think I was a little bit naive about that. I'm not surprised by years, but I am surprised by many years. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's almost like healing feels elusive, the side of heaven or something. Like I remember going in and our first adoption was a toddler and someone had told me, you know, it takes about as long as they've been away from you as Yeah, like you hit equilibrium, I guess, when they've been with you as long as they've been away from you. So for our two and a half year old, I thought, okay, so two and a half years of like adjusting, it might be hard for a couple years and then we'll, it will be smooth sailing. And that was not the case for us. Yeah, not for us either. So I don't know. I'm not sure if that statistic, which I also heard is based in some kind of research or in hopeful thinking, or I'm not sure. Now, I do remember when I brought home a five and a half year old and a 10 year old thinking, oh my word, I can't imagine it's going to take that many years. But let me tell you, it it takes that many years. So, but it's okay. It's okay. Because I think we get our stride and we begin to realize, okay, this is not a sprint. This is indeed a marathon. And once I think we get our minds wrapped around that, we settle into our pace. So there might be times of discouragement, but overall, we are 
aware that this is a long journey. I think that's true for us too. Once we adjusted our expectations to that lifelong journey part, not that the hardest part of adoption was the paperwork and that bringing our child home was kind of like the epitome. And then it was like, the hard part was the paperwork. And then we brought our child home and then it's smooth sailing from there is that the paperwork's like the easy part. And then you bring your child home and that's just the beginning. And then you settle in for your long journey. And I think once I understood that and our expectations shifted a little bit, it has made the day to day not easier, but again, the expectations have shifted. So how I view my perspective on the day-to-day challenges is totally different. And we are in a much better place because of that. Yeah, I, I hear you. That's good. Well, I had the privilege of interviewing our guest this week. I interviewed Jamie Finn. And Jamie is the biological adoptive and foster mom of four to six children, depending upon the day or the week. She is the author of Foster the Family blog, which is read by 100,000 people each month and has been featured in over 20 online and print publications, as well as the host of the Real Mom podcast, which I had the privilege of being interviewed on just not that long ago. Uh, Jamie serves as the director of Foster the Family, a nonprofit which seeks to encourage and support foster and adoptive families, mobilize the church and community for foster care and adoption, and advocate for vulnerable children. So you can see she's a very busy mama. Yeah, she is a busy mama. She's also a homeschooling mama, and she has just a fantastic perspective on foster care and a lot of wise words. So I'm looking forward to hearing her interview. It's, it's a great interview. I just want to add one thing. We ask in our uh, pre-interview survey, we like to ask people about their accomplishments and things, and this is what she had to say. I married my, high, my middle school sweetheart. Let me repeat that. Married my middle school sweetheart, and he turned out to be the greatest husband slash dad I could have ever hoped for. We've created a family with the most amazing children, definitely my greatest accomplishment. So there you go. I hope you enjoy this interview. Let's hear from Jamie. Hi, Jamie. Welcome to the Adoption Connection Podcast. Hi, Lisa. I'm so happy to be talking to you today. Well, I'm happy to be talking to you, too. It's a lot of fun to get to see you and and visit with you. Sometimes we're at the same conferences, and we're just, like, passing each other in hallways. Yeah, I feel like we hugged once for five seconds, and that was the the most connection we've had. (laughs) I remember saying, oh, we should take a picture. I was thinking of Instagram, but neither of us, we were both moving to the next thing we were speaking, so... Well, good. This will officially be our longest conversation. It will be. It will be. I have been following you now for a while with your blog and now, of course, with your podcast and all the other things you are doing. Why don't you tell our listeners just a little bit about you? I am a wife, a mom. I have four children in my home right now. Actually, my number dropped two days ago. We just had a baby go home on Friday. We have two biological children, two adopted, and then we always have one or two foster children in the home also. And I spend my days homeschooling my kids, writing about our whole mess, and uh, running a nonprofit that helps local foster families and children. So tell me what led you and your husband to even get into foster care. How did you get interested and what did that path look like for you? So the path didn't look like what I thought it would look like, honestly. We always planned on adoption eventually, but it was one of those things where 
all of a sudden we had our two kids and we hadn't saved and we hadn't planned and we didn't know where it was going to take us. My husband has two sisters adopted from China and it was always on his heart, always on mine, but we were very content with our one girl, one boy, nice little happy life where everything was together. So it was unexpected for us. I never saw foster care or domestic adoption or definitely adoption from foster care. Never saw that as part of our journey. But it was something that God put on our hearts. And it once it was there, it wasn't going anywhere. I, mm-hmm. <laughs> I became obsessed with this idea of the fact that there were children who could live on my street, who were in our schools and in our towns, who needed to be protected. It, it became sort of this all-consuming reality to me. And the little bit that I felt like we could do didn't feel like enough. And <laughs> so the plan was only ever to take one child and not to adopt. Then it became a second and then a third and a fourth. And, mm-hmm. and we are, are 21 kids in now. Wow. Okay. And how, many, how long of a time span have you been foster parents now? We've been foster parents for five years. We adopted our very first placement and (laughs) adopted another little girl also. We've had kids for two days or the longest placement who left our home was 13 months, other than the two who stayed forever. Yeah, yeah. Um, And how did you, you know, I, I know you mostly, it looks like take young babies and maybe newborns. How did you decide? How did you set parameters on what you were going to do? So our initial thought was that we really, birth order was important to us. My daughter is very much the oldest mama, kind of. My son is very alpha male. So even now we don't take any boys unless they're, yeah, unless they're newborns. And it was just being very aware of who our kids are and what was going to serve them. It was not really the plan for us to take newborns only, mm-hmm. but we live in Camden County, which is the drug capital of the Northeast. Oh. So we live, I mean, there are cornfields in our backyard. We live in the total suburbs, but you drive a few minutes and Camden feels like a third world country. There's nothing really like it. So the whole idea that, that babies are this, this thing that everyone wants, then you can, that is not the reality we have in Camden County. I'm a stay-at-home mom. Mm-hmm. I'm able to take kids before they can go into um, a daycare. I'm able to take kids with special medical needs because of that. So literally, you know, when my baby was picked up on Friday, the worker walked in and said, so oh. <laughs> there's a baby I need you. And that's just the reality. It is, it's really an epidemic the drug Mm. crisis here is huge. And so that means, you know, we have a couple really big hospitals where a lot of babies are born and a lot of babies are removed. And so it became, it became something of a mission without even really deciding that that would be our mission. You know, running a nonprofit is very busy and it's very important to me to be able to nurture the children who are in my home. And so a baby can go everywhere with me. A baby can can be attached to me and I mean physically attached to me right right (laughs) doing my work and so it just became sort of the easy answer Mm -hmm. now we do have a bed for a little girl and 
it just hasn't been filled. But but we we almost always have a, have a baby in the home. And I'm a bit of a I'm a scheduler. I there's something about having babies all the time that it just becomes something that you can do, something that is is becomes the norm and I'm used to not sleeping and I'm used to the whole rigmarole. So it's just a part of our lives now. And so you're pretty well just set up. I mean, you know that when one baby goes, you're going to have another one before long. Yeah, exactly. And it's our family's norm. I mean, my three-year-old has speech delays and and the other day she asked, um, does she live here anymore? And I said, no. And she said, we don't have any babies in the house. We need Uh. a baby in the house. So it's just our, our family's norm now that we're caring for a baby. And of course, you know, a premature often addicted often a baby like that can be overwhelming and scary and isn't anymore for, for a family that's done it over and over. So the doctor's appointments and then knowing how to help a child who's withdrawing and dealing with apnea machines and special medical appointments and all of that, it's just become something that's a norm for us. When you went into foster care, to being a foster parent, did you expect you would have this many children come through your home in such a short period of time? I didn't. I, I have to say that I, I didn't really know what to expect. This for us was something, for my husband certainly, he never, when you ask him if he, when he wanted to become a foster parent, he says never. <laughs> yeah. And when you ask him when he knew that he was supposed to be, he says never. For him, mm-hmm. this was a call to follow God's word in caring for the orphan in a really practical, hands-on way. So we didn't really know, we didn't go into it with expectations. And this is what we're going to do here. For him, I, I think that he's really the hero of this because he doesn't love being a foster parent, but he loves following God in a sacrificial way. And that's really beautiful to me. So, but I will say when we first became foster parents, it was very much so a quest to rescue these children from their addicted, criminal, evil parents. And for me, it was very much about the child and about getting these children out of their homes and into safe homes. I didn't have a great view of reunification. I didn't believe that children were better with their biological families. I, I really struggled to believe all of those things. Now, that's changed. <laughs> <laughs> well, and tell it, me, okay, before you tell me uh, what it's like now, tell me what happened to take you from wanting to rescue these children out of their birth families to wanting to help these families heal and the children be able to go home to their moms and dads and siblings? I wouldn't have wanted to admit this, but it was, I had a pride of believing that my family had, we had our act together and we had something to offer these children and they were going to be better off with us. They were going to be nurtured and loved and learn about Jesus. And, and God humbled me really. God had to show me in a way that only he could, because I went through the trainings and people told me and God started to show me really, what do you have that you've not received? And I felt so humbled by the reality that anything that I am 
as a parent is only a gift from him. And for me, that gift is that I grew up in a beautiful Christian family with two parents and never hungry and no one ever hurt me. That was my reality. That's not everyone's reality, but everyone's reality is what do you have that you've not received? Mm -hmm. And I think that that truth of who we are and what we're able to give these children is only a gift of God and only something that should lead us to compassion and never to this, come on, get your act together, pull yourself up. And so I think for me, it, I needed to be able to compare my blessed, easy, happy life to that of my kids' parents and comparing it, it was such a stark contrast of brokenness and sadness and difficulty and abuse and suicide and all these things in it was by God's grace my very first foster child mother that taught me this lesson but to be able to see her story and compare it to mine was so humbling that it, it really changed my heart now I haven't arrived I continue to struggle continue to have to fight to put on humility and see that anything I am is just a gift from God that I'm no better than my kids' parents. But it was that humbling that really started to change my heart. Yeah, I think as I know more and more families whose children are in foster care and they're doing what they can to get them back, I mean, the hill they are climbing is so steep. It's just unbelievable. The things that are from their history, the things that are in their present, the tasks that they've been given to accomplish in order to get their kids home. I mean, it's really a heavy, heavy weight. And when I think of my hardest parenting, which some of it has been extremely hard, I didn't have to do it alone. I had, yeah, yeah. I had a husband. I had a clean, safe home. I had stable income, you know, always had food in my cupboards. So even when it was so hard, it does not compare to what a lot of the parents I know are trying to, what they're up against, what they're trying to climb past in order to get their kids back. Yeah. Well, and in in New Jersey, I'm not sure why it is this way, but there is a a strong disconnect between foster parents and biological parents. So I know in many other states, you transport to visits, you sometimes supervise visits, those sorts of things. In New Jersey, you could easily go years of having a child in your home and never come in contact with that parent. Wow. So it really does not serve the foster parents in humanizing these kids' biological parents. And that was what took it for me. And honestly, it's what continues to be the the catalyst for me having compassion is the more that you are a human being with (laughs) struggles, with a faith and a heart, and I see how you love your child and I hear part of your story, the easier it is for me to root for you and support you and forgive you and all of that. So For me in New Jersey, that's meant me building bridges that aren't automatically built for me. Tell me how you've gone about doing that. I mean, if there aren't systems already in place for you to connect with these babies' parents, what have you had to do to make those connections yourself? I make every effort to build a relationship. Um, So the first step is for me always just sending a journal on visits 
I have a back and forth journal where I'm writing different details about their child, sharing pictures, asking questions. With an infant, it's a little bit different than an older child, but just anything from how do you, how would you like me to do their hair? Mm. Are there songs that you want me to sing? And really just trying to put them in the driver's seat as much as possible and come with this sort of disposition of humility and you're the parent. Now, we are just only foster parents right now, meaning that we are not looking to adopt any more children. And so I like to communicate that to the parents. I see that as a major wall breaker for me to say, you are this child's mother. I am not looking to become this child's mother. I, I say that flat out. I am not looking to adopt your child. I'm looking to support you to be here for you as long as you need me. Now, not everyone's able to say that. And I wasn't always able to say that. But I think that that we need to find what we are able to say. So Mm -hmm. I was talking to a friend about this the other day, she was saying, I can't say, I hope that you are reunified. I hope because I don't feel that that wouldn't be an honest thing for me to say. So I was encouraging her, well, what can you say, even if it's just sort of in faith. So you know, I'm praying that you are able to do this, or I believe that you will be a great mother to her and just communicating what we can, even when we don't feel it in every part of our heart, mm-hmm. <laughs> that mm-hmm. that's a part of our heart that we're fighting to be for them, or at least fighting to believe that God created their family, that, you know, he perfectly put them in that family unit. We need to find something to be able to keep communicate to these parents that we are for them. Yes. And I see that as a, as a huge way to be able to break down walls and then also to start conversations that even when I do meet my kids' parents, you know, I'm a lot of times it's awkward situations where you're not really having heart to hearts and it can be easier to write, I love you. I you know, these, these things that you wouldn't say to a stranger. Yeah. <laughs> and I found that it's built relationships that then I can build on. Here's my phone number. We're going to this doctor's appointment. Will you please join us? What can I get for you? How can I help you? Okay. Now this child's going home. Here's my phone number. Call me at bedtime when he's not going to sleep for you. And I'll talk you through it. Those sorts of, but it starts with the foundation of me reaching out and, and trying to build that. Do you have support from the caseworkers on that? Are they, do they feel like you're going the extra mile and they appreciate it, or do they feel like you're complicating things? Both, sometimes. <laughs> Both, neither. It depends on the worker. It depends on the case. That is a question that foster parents often ask me. Well, my worker told me that this parent's dangerous. I get that a lot, too. Like, oh, no, this isn't a good situation. What I find is that the more questions I ask and the more I say, well, then what communication can we have? What extra steps can I take? The more I realize that it probably was just, you're going to make this more complicated because now mom's going to get mad at you and you're going to be calling me and it's going to bring drama in. But my encouragement to foster parents is ask the why questions. Why is dad unsafe? Oh, because he was smoking weed. Okay, well, I feel comfortable with that. So I would like to share my, you know, and just don't take the easy answer of, no, I'm sorry, there's no communication allowed. Well, why is that? Is there anything I am allowed? Could we figure out some sort of situation? But 
that we need to own it. I, I don't think that we can just put this off on the workers. Right. As, well, you do your job. You create the context for us to get to know each other and for us to work together for this child. I, I see that as falling on us as much as possible. That's really good. When we do training here in Idaho, at least in my area, we tell parents, you know, you're not just fostering the children. You are actually fostering the family. You know, we actually expect when it is safe for foster parents to engage with that family because, you know, we're, we're the bridge for a period of time between the family and the child. And I, I do think it makes a difference if we're not going into it hoping to adopt. I, I understand that that would feel very, very different. For us, we're also foster only. Our family is big, <laughs> you know, and <laughs> we're really, and I, I want to help these moms. I mean, I really feel like there, but for the grace of God, I mean, it exactly. could have been me if my circumstances would have been different. And, you know, these, a lot of these moms, it's not that they don't want to care for their children. It's just like we were saying, they just have so many obstacles against them, you know, and it's difficult. It's very difficult. Yeah, exactly. I, I think that the more that we try to enter their stories, the easier that reality is. I have such compassion on parents who, foster parents, have a heart for adoption. Mm-hmm. Um, especially, you know, I, I know many who struggle with infertility and it is difficult to be for something that is going to break your heart yeah. and, and tear what you see as your family apart. It is so difficult. And that's why for me, it has to be more than the details of family. It's a theological thing. What do I believe about what God says about the family? I can easily look at every one of my kids' parents. I really think in every single case and say, I would do a better job. Mm-hmm. I have my act together more. We have you know, a more stable support system and money and all those things. And so I can't look at the details and create a picture in my mind and compare two situations. Right. It has to be theological for me. God created families to be together. His heart is for them to stay together when at all possible. And I want to play a part of his purpose of redemption. I mean, this is the story of God. This is the story Mm -hmm. of the Bible, of God redeeming people and healing and pursuing those who are needy and showing mercy. So it changes for me when I become less about do I feel like this parent is safe and what can this parent offer? And I just look at what God says about it. Right. That's so beautiful. I think, you know, we can't draw a line down the center of the page and put us and put the child's family on the other side because it is, we're not weighing things in the balance. This is not a competition or a who's the better parent. It's not about that. It really is about trying to bring wholeness and healing back to brokenness. I mean, that's our whole purpose in this life, you know, for me is to try to bring the hope of Christ, the healing power of his love into people's lives. And it is a very sweet space to get to do that for these parents. Have you had um, any children return to you after they went home? This is a tricky question because I'm, in the process of that possibly happening. Okay, okay. But, it's, but I have to say, you know, I'm comfortable talking about this because it's, it's not through the state. It's through the relationship that I forged with mom. Mm-hmm. And so the reason that I build with parents 
is for these kids. It's for the parents and it's for these kids. I mean, I, I remember having those thoughts. And to be honest, sadly, I hear these questions often of, well, shouldn't these parents know how to completely care for their child? Why should I set them up with for their visits? And why should I tell them all the things that are going to help? They should know. If we love our kids, <laughs> then we want to make everything easier and sweeter for them. Their visits, we want them to be successful because we love these kids. And reunification, we want it to be successful. Transitions, we want them to be easier because we love these kids. So that's why I build with my kids' parents. But I have to say that a really great byproduct of it is if you involve them and you're reaching out to them and you're opening the door and sending pictures and communicating, they're often going to be much more prone to do the same to you. Right. So I get pictures, texts, updates. I've had lunch dates and babysat, all those things in an un- unofficial capacity mm-hmm. because of the trust I've built with my kids' parents. So right now I, I have a mom that I talk to on a daily basis. You know, I'm joining her at her next court date and filing up, filing paperwork and that kind of stuff. So sadly, it is a reality. I mean, when reunification is the primary goal, we're going to push for that and work towards it. And they're not always ready for it. But yeah, right now, just being involved in continuing to be involved in this child's story, because I deeply love and care for his mother, has just been a beautiful thing of, of God really confirming she was the hardest parent probably for me to ever love. And yet we have the sweetest, most beautiful relationship now. And I just feel so grateful to God. To me, this is a full circle of obeying him when it was hard, trusting him when it didn't make sense to me, and then maybe seeing what his plan was throughout it, which we don't always get to see. I mean, we know he has a good plan, but a big part of foster care is that we play a short part in our kids' stories and then often don't see the ending. Um, and so we have to really believe that, that he makes good plans, even when we don't see them. That's so true. But when we went into it, I honestly, I knew very little because we weren't actually foster parents at the time. I remember thinking that we wouldn't have contact and relationship with our foster daughter's family. It just, I didn't know that. We hadn't been through any training or anything yet. And now, well, two and a half years later, and she's still with us. You know, I have met a lot of her large family and have relationship with siblings and mom and younger siblings. In fact, her little sister came and spent the night this weekend. And, you know, yeah. And I just, I'm so thankful for that. She is very integrated and yet she is also very much her family's daughter, sister. In fact, last night she spent the night at her brother and sister-in-law's place. So, you know, it's very extended family-ish for us. And of course, it's a lot different with a teen than with a baby, but um, it's been a beautiful learning experience. And I don't know, I'm just so thankful for it. Yeah, I, that's been another thing that's taken me time to learn, but that God has really done in my heart, just this fluidity of family that... Mm-hmm. I, I felt a very possessive, okay, once this child is my adopted child, then that's it. And I remember hearing a story of someone who took custody of, to support and thinking, that's crazy. I would never do that. Mm-hmm. And that's what we may be jumping into soon. And it's just this different sort of idea of 
I love people, whether they officially belong to me or not. And I get to invite people into this fold that we have and see children that were in my home be adopted by other families. And then that family is a part of our extended family also. And then we have, it's a reality that I didn't see coming. And I'm grateful that God has opened my heart to it more. And I'm still learning it. God is Yeah. Well, it's, it's just a fascinating journey. That's for sure. So tell me how your children, tell, remind us of your kids' ages and tell me how they react and cope with the comings and goings. Yeah, I have uh, 10, 7, 5, and 3. Everyone absolutely loves being able to care for babies. You know, the babies are the easy ones, I think, to integrate into the family. It's also just the reality. I mean, they do have to share me. They do have to deal with a lot of goodbyes. And I think for my biological children, I'm not really concerned. They have very secure attachments. They, they completely understand that they are ours forever. My burden is more for my adopted children and helping them understand forever that they are never going anywhere. That, you know, when we're talking about these kids' parents and they have parents who are fighting for them and the reality of what that means for their story. And that I think is more of something that we are intentional about. You know, my kids cry their eyes out. My bio kids cry their eyes out. And, but they, they understand it. It's my adopted girls that we are just forever, forever, forever. Yeah. You are my daughter forever. And communicating very clearly throughout the whole process, the difference between these kids who have parents who are working hard to get them back, or these kids who are going to be adopted by another family or, but there is a difference that in our hearts, in our, in the function, when these kids are in our homes, there's not, but in the, the story, you are our child forever. Thankfully, We've seen that it's super positive, that everyone loves it, that, you know, if this has been our reality, my, my oldest is five. So right. foster care is what they know. So, you know, when, when strangers come out, the UPS guy is a worker. Everyone's a worker. Everyone oh. who shows up. <laughs> yeah. So it's just the reality of workers. And when is my, my five-year-old's question is, when is somebody going to need us? That's oh. her big question. That's a beautiful question. Yep. When is somebody going to need us? So for us, it really is a beautiful, positive experience. But I do think that part of that, like I said before, is knowing our kids and the dynamics. If we brought a seven-year-old boy into my son's room, Mm -hmm. it would not be a beautiful, positive experience. So I think knowing your kids and how they're bent is a big part of it. We can get swept up in the need. You know, like we might know what our parameters are, and then find ourselves saying yes to something that maybe is far outside of that. And you know, sometimes it works beautifully and sometimes it doesn't. It's good. I I think you're wise to have set the parameters you know work for your family. And like you said, you live in a unique place. Like around here, we do not have nearly like lots and lots of people want to foster newborns, but we just don't have that many, you know, and like a lot of places, what we need are people who will take teens and sibling sets, you know, but where you live, it just seems like a perfect fit. It's funny because I, I know that people say that, Oh, anyone will take a baby, but it's a crisis where we are. I mean, they're actually 
trying to talk about ways that foster parents step in just for the six weeks before a child can go into daycare. We have a lot of double working parents. I mean, that is the reality of where we are. So it's a crisis. And for me, my heart would be bent more towards older children. But the reality of my work, what I'm doing to support other foster families and children, I struggle with boundaries personally. I am grateful for a husband. We have a a very healthy push and pull. (laughs) I am a big pusher and he is a big puller. Yep, yep. And so he really really helps me create boundaries that I would really struggle to create myself. I do not do a great job with self-care. I don't do a great job with creating boundaries myself. So I'm grateful for him. And then I'm grateful just for this niche that I am so involved in so many people's stories in the work that I do, and then are, am able to, to help in this, this great need where we are with caring for newborns. So with your heart for reunification, how do you deal with your own grief and loss when these children that you've really come to love leave? I found out on Thursday that my foster daughter, who I thought was staying, and staying for staying a long time, for staying. a very long time, <laughs> like maybe <laughs> forever, a very long time, and maybe forever. I I said goodbye to five children this year. I was not expecting a goodbye. I was not prepared. We're about to put up our Christmas tree, and I just pulled out the Christmas jams, and there is her matching gift. I made plans for her that I don't often make because I thought she was going to be here. So I found out on Thursday that um, a family member was granted custody. And then on Friday, they picked her up. (laughs) Wow. Did the family pick her up or a caseworker? The caseworker did. So you didn't get to meet them? I didn't get to meet them. And because it was an out-of-state family member who had never even met the baby, I never even had a chance to build a bridge. So I did what I always do with sending way too much stuff and sending a letter and everything I've learned about this child and books and my phone number and email address. I haven't heard anything. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So Thursday, I, you know, basically my, I, you start to learn a pattern for Mm -hmm. your grief. And mine is that I watch TV and I eat junk food. Uh (laughs) Like my, the teenage version of myself, like getting dumped or something. And this time I thought, oh man, this is hitting me really hard because it was two days of me feeling basically not functional. But then I realized it was the day I found out and the day I left, which is my pattern of grief. When I find out, I play cool on the phone and say, okay, that's great. And then I hang up and cry my eyes out and stop for junk food and park myself on the couch and yell at everyone to leave me alone. And, (laughs) uh, And that's my reality when I find out and then the day that the child leaves. But then for me, it has to go into, again, a theological answer. I can't talk myself into the fact that this is the best thing and she'll get to grow up in a family where she won't you know, have to be adopted and have to struggle through some things that our adopted children struggle through and mm-hmm. have to be raised in a family of a different race. And those reasons aren't enough for me. And so I can't tell myself, oh, this aunt is going to love her and it'll be a happy ending. I have to get deep theological truth mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. God, you are the one in control. I felt like I was control 
in control. I thought I had another year. You planned her days before she was born. You created this perfect plan for her. You are with her when I can't be with her. You, you know, and for me, I have to disconnect from the child's story and connect deeply to the truths that I believe and know about God. You know, because I'm a writer, I have them written down and, mm-hmm. and I reorient my heart after every time and tell myself the things that I'm not thinking and that I'm not believing. But, but it's not enough to just focus on the, the positive, the good of the story. That's never enough for me. Yeah. Well, because loss is, I mean, it requires something to be willing to walk into loss is, right, right, right. it's a unique thing. And I, when I think about going to with the truth, you know, we lost one of our children. It's not enough for me to say, oh, I'm sure heaven's great. And, you know, mm. it's not enough for me even to say, God will never give you more than you handle. That is not true. He definitely gave you <laughs> more than we can handle. Exactly. But what, <laughs> but what is true is that we have a God who loves us and loves her. And again, he planned her story. He planned her life from the beginning to the last day, you know, and nothing is outside of his good truth and sovereignty for us, you know, and like, I have to go really deep or I will not be okay. And so I get that. I get that in a, in a number of different ways, but I think you're right. We have to remember why God calls us to things or why we think anyhow, but that we have to know he has called us and what his purposes are. And that really, again, we are always about his work of bringing restoration to this broken world thing. And I'm just so happy I got to hear more of your story, Jamie. Is there any last thing you want to share before we close up? I think that you hit what what I would love to share, which is reorient your heart to why you feel you're called to this. I think that it is a very wearying job because we're choosing heartbreak. And there, there's really not many other things in life where you say like, okay, bring me another heartbreak. And mm-hmm. we need to have a foundational truth, a foundational reality of why we do this. It can't just be about the kids. It can't just be about families. It has to be about restoring and being a part of God's, God's beautiful work on this broken earth. So you really, man, we are, we're soul sisters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we are. We are. We got to spend more time together for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much and have a wonderful start of 2019. Thank you so much, Lisa. I knew you guys would love Jamie's interview. I love her heart for birth moms. And I know that's been a journey for her, but I could just tell through her interview, her compassion and her passion for loving birth moms and understanding them and honoring the relationship that her kids have with them. And I just think it's a great example that we could all learn a lot from. Well, you can imagine, I really appreciate it as a birth mom myself, when I get to have a conversation with someone who has her perspective, it means a lot to me. I really appreciate it. And I enjoyed talking with her so much. So just so you all know, we will have show notes, as we always do, and there'll be information about where you can find Jamie. There'll also be a link to my interview with her on her podcast, The Real Mom Podcast. Just so you know, if you have a good memory for this, you can find Jamie at Foster the Family Blog pretty much everywhere. She's fosterthefamilyblog.com. 
She's Foster the Family Blog on Facebook and Instagram. So she's not too difficult to find. I think you'll, uh, you'll want to look her up for sure. And this is our last episode before Christmas. So we want to wish you all a Merry Christmas and a wonderful Happy New Year. We wish you all a very regulated, calm holiday. Uh, I don't know exactly how it will go for everybody, but we really do wish and hope that you'll have a wonderful holiday. We will see you again on January 8th when we talk about hopes and plans for 2019 for all of us as families. Yeah, I would just tack on to that, that, you know, find little pockets of time to take care of yourself. It's really the only thing that we can control in the crazy. We can't control how our kids will react, what the behaviors will be, all of those things, but we can control ourselves and give the gift of filling up our buckets a little bit. So we will see you all in the new year. In the meantime, if you want to check out the Real Mom podcast and Lisa's interview there or find all the places Jamie is on the internet, you can head to the show notes at theadoptionconnection.com slash 20. We come to the part in the podcast that we call Mentor Moments, where we answer a listener's question. So this week's question is perfect timing for the holidays. My extended family expects us to join in the family holiday gathering. My kids are doing pretty well, but I want to set them up for success and minimize the chances of a huge meltdown. Can you give me some ideas? Oh, such a good question. I would say I'm a huge fan of really clear communication. So if there's anything that you think would be helpful or you're thinking in past experiences, things that have happened at other family gatherings and you're thinking, gosh, I really wish so-and-so had handled that differently or hadn't said that to my kid, you know, go ahead and shoot an email, a friendly email to your extended family and just, you know, tell them that you're excited to come and you really want it to be a successful visit for your child. And here are some of the ways that they can help you guys out, kind of be on the same team and just kind of use that language of collaboration, setting everyone up for a good experience. Oh, that's really good advice. I like that. Uh, the first thing that comes to my mind when I think about this is being preemptive about food. Like I would never take my kids to a party hungry. I would rather they have good, even blood sugar. They're feeling good when we get there. And especially my kids with the most food trauma, I would definitely have fed Calcadon before a family gathering. And I would pack snacks of foods that I know my kids like and would be good for them because you never know for sure what's going to be at a gathering. I mean, maybe at a family gathering, you might have a better idea, but some kids, food's just hard and they need it. So I would definitely take things for them and also feed them something before we left the house. Yeah. And we've had kids with restricted diets before. And so I try to make something that's really fun for them to eat, but still within their food restrictions so that they don't feel so left out. So they can have, you know, I might make a dozen paleo cupcakes and say he can have all 12 at the party, but you know, that kind of lessens the sting of not being able to have something else that looks yummy on the table. Yeah, that's a good point. Something else is expectations. Our kids are overwhelmed easily. And so if your child needs to have noise canceling earbuds in and maybe an MP3 player with some music or wants to sit under the table the whole time or whatever the thing is, you know, pick your battles wisely. 
um, if they're regulated and they're doing something that's still in the realm of safety, maybe let it slide. And I would say for my older kids, we've kind of given them permission to opt out of some of these things. So we will all go and we invite them and we tell them we would love to have them there, but we don't fight them to come with us because there's nothing worse than taking a grumpy teenager to a gathering that you otherwise would enjoy. And so if it's just the same to everyone else, give them the choice to come or not come. That's, that's good advice. The other thing I would do is I would plan to maybe stay a shorter time than you, than everybody might stay. Let's say it's an all afternoon gathering. I would probably plan a certain amount of time that we were going to stay. I'd talk about it with Russ in advance so that we were on the same page. Like, okay, we're going to have dinner. We're going to stay an hour and we are going to go home because our kids will do far better if we keep them in their routine, if we don't have them stay up late. Because the thing is, it's so easy to get caught up when, if things are going well, to just keep staying until it all falls apart. Yeah. Quit while you're ahead. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's exactly it. I would rather leave when everybody's feeling like, hey, we did a good job. And my family's feeling like, hey, they did pretty well. That wasn't so bad this year. You know, I'd rather have it everybody feel like that was good, then wait until somebody falls apart. And, you know, this is actually advice for any parent, not just kids from hard places. I mean, our kids, lack of sleep, too much sugar, being out of their routine, that's just a, you know, a recipe for dysregulation. So we want to do our best to help our kids stay regulated and calm. Yeah. And I would say one more thing to add to that let your kids know what the plan is because if they always do better when they know, and if they're not, maybe they're anxious or they don't love where you're going and they're kind of like tugging on you the whole time. And they're like, when do we get to leave? You know, um, just let them know we're going to go eat dinner and then we're going to stay for a half an half an hour, an hour. That's what mom and dad decided is good. And this is the time on the clock you can watch for. And then they'll know, and they'll know that this isn't like a forever gathering or, you know, they'll have their answer to their question. And even if you get a hundred million asks about when we're going to leave, you can have a consistent, calm answer, you know, we're going to leave at X time. And so I think the clearer the expectations for everyone, the better. Absolutely. Really, the clearer we can be, we talk about this a lot, but structure around our kids reduces their anxiety and really helps them be calmer. So it's a good thing. So if you would like to submit a question for a future episode, you can send an email to email at theadoptionconnection.com or even more fun, you can leave a message on our phone line, which is just a recording. Nobody will answer it, but we'd love to hear your voice. And the number is 208-741-3880. If you want more personalized help, we offer private coaching. For more information, head to theadoptionconnection.com slash services. Before you go, we'd love to connect with you on social media. You can find us on Facebook or Instagram as The Adoption Connection. Thanks so much for listening. We love having you. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a quick review over on iTunes. It will help us reach more moms who may be feeling alone. And remember, until next week... You're a good mom, doing good work, and we're here for you. The music for the podcast is called New Day and was created by Lee Rosevere.